Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. Today's guest is Roar Bionis. Roar is the co-founder of Systems Change Alliance and a longtime environmental activist and writer on ecology and alternative economics. Today, we're going to talk mostly about his book, Growing a New Economy, Beyond Crisis Capitalism and Environmental Destruction. These are topics we've talked a lot about on the Jim Rudd Show. So welcome, Roar. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, I look forward to this conversation. It's quite an interesting book. I mean, you've obviously been thinking about this for a long time. You know a lot of the sources, etc. It'll be fun to jump into this. Let's start off with the way you start the book, with a quote from Naomi Klein, where she says, We live in a time of overlapping crisis. We need to connect the dots because we don't have time to solve each crisis sequentially. We need a movement that addresses all of them. Yeah, I started the book with that quote because I think it's so important to connect the dots. So the main topics in the book are the financial crisis, the environmental crisis, resource crisis, and the inequality crisis. And all of these crises have a common cause that is partly the economic system. But even before we think about the economic system, we need to look at the worldview that created this economic system. E.F. Schumacher, maybe the father of green economics in the 1970s, said that every economic system has an underlying philosophy, an underlying worldview. And I think that's, that's very important. So, for example, today we are now at COP27 in Egypt. We have all of the different politicians from the rich countries and the poor countries. We have many activists there as well. But most of the discussions are related to how we can find solutions that I would describe as greenwashing, not real deep solutions, not fundamental solutions. And that's what I think Naomi Klein means and what we mean in the book, that we need to really dig deep into what are the underlying sources or causes of these problems, the finance crisis, environmental crisis, resource crisis, inequality crisis, which has led to the problems of climate change. Because it's the economy, stupid, uh, that I think is the main problem. And then, of course, we have to look at what is it in the economy that is the problem. Yeah, I would add two more things to this. In my world, the Game B world, and what people call the liminal web world, We often talk about the meta-crisis, which includes the four you talked about and a couple others, one of which is the collective cognition problem, right? We'd argue in some sense that may be the most fundamental. It feels like the political world is losing its mind, right? What's that all about? I think back in 1964, when I first got involved in politics at age 11, 
this is an interesting statistic. Less than half of American adults, 25 and over, had high school degrees. It was about 45%. Only 9% had four-year college degrees. And yet our politics was fairly sane. Today, in the United States, 90% of adults 25 and over have high school degrees, and about 37%, varies a little bit by state, but 37% or so have four-year college degrees. And our politics seems insane, right? And our ability to make sense of the world together and come to some kind of consensus view on what's right and what's wrong, we seem to be losing that. And I recently said on a public talk I gave that if I had to guess which of the various parts of the meta crisis are going to kill us, it might be that one. It might get us before climate change does, right? Because if you can't decide, if you can't think, you can't make collective decisions, you're in a deep world hurt. The other one, which you do allude to, and I do think you see this, is that culture is kind of a substrate, particularly the culture of materialism, more, 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 that drives and is driven by the other four parts that you talk about. So anyway, let's move on here and then take another quote from the book. And this, I think, is very important for setting the grounding of the philosophy and theme of the rest of the work. The financial crisis and the inequality crisis are both expressions of human-made systems, namely our economic and political structures. Both of these crises are thus within the reach of politicians, activists, and economists to reform, restructure, or tweak. I often call this the gateway insight. So many people think that what we have came down from Mount Sinai with Moses or some such, right? That the 11th commandment was fractional reserve banking. And of course, that's baloney. This is all stuff humans have made up and humans can change. Yeah, again, you know, what you said just earlier in your commentary there, this about the meta crisis, I think is very important. And that's what I mean by the, the need for a proper worldview, because we need to have a common worldview. And, and the, the good news is that I think that is happening on the ground. You know, Paul Hawken wrote in one of his last books that there is a movement that the media doesn't talk about. And that movement is partly within the environmental movement and partly within the, what I would uh, call the system sciences and the spiritual movement. For example, Jeremy Lent is talking about this, the, the need for a new worldview. I think this is very, very important. So we have lost touch with the real economy. And instead, we have replaced the real economy with the financial economy. But even the financial economy has become a speculative economy because fundamentally a financial economy should support the real economy, the making of things. Economics comes from the Greek oikos, which connects ecology and economy, taking care of the household, which is the underlying philosophy behind economics. Since Adam Smith developed his ideas about the economics and classical economy, we have sort of gradually gotten off course. Many of the ideas that Adam Smith had in the beginning were pretty sound, but there was one particular problem, and that is his focus on profit and selfishness. And again, this comes back to the idea of, you know, are human beings selfish? Aren't we also altruistic? It comes back to the whole idea of evolution. Is evolution just, you know, survival of the fittest and so on? So that, to me, is part of this meta-crisis. These are some of the thoughts, ideas that we need to come to grips with in order to understand that economics 
is not a science in the sense of physics. It is really an expression of culture, an expression of meaning, and the way we share and distribute and use our resources. Yeah, and you made a very good point that until around 1800, humans would have thought it very strange the way that we've put financialized markets at the center of everything. That is not certainly how our hunter-gatherer forebearers did things, nor was it the way it was done through the Greeks, the Romans in the Far East, etc. The economy or production, consumption, and savings and investment were tools for the good life, not an end in their own self. That misreading of Adam Smith, you got to read Theory of Moral Sentiments with Wealth of Nations to really understand Adam Smith. And people who focus only on Wealth of Nations come away with a distorted view. And unfortunately, the world actually did go that way. But they went that distorted view that celebrating personal greed is the way to collective good was a gigantic mistake. To your comment about Jeremy Lent, I actually had him on the podcast about a year ago, EP 150. We had a really good conversation about his recent book, which was titled The Web of Meaning, and about the nature of humans, whether altruistic or not. And a really good conversation with Sam Bowles, the economist who's done a lot of work with Herb Gintis field work all around the world on, you know, doing economic games and stuff. And he finds that people are both selfish and cooperative. And some very, very interesting results in that space in EP 100. So the economy and ecology, you say, are highly interdependent. It is about time we humans, as stewards of this planet, begin to conduct our political and economic activities accordingly. Yeah, this I think is so important. In System Strange Alliance, which I'm co-founder of, and if any of your listeners go to systemschangealliance.org, they'll see that on that website we have four circles. The first one is about this web of meaning, the worldview. The second one is about nature. And the third one is society. And then the fourth one is economics. In modern economics, We've got it all backwards. We start with economics, and then everything is subsidiary to the economic system. This is part of the problem and part of the disconnect. So this change started happening in the 60s. I I would say Rachel Carson's Silent Spring woke people up to the fact that we had environmental problems. And then, as I mentioned earlier, E.F. Schumacher in the early 70s with Small is Beautiful, And I myself was part of that movement. I studied agronomy, agriculture at that time, and was part of this small green revolution in Norway, where I grew up. We were able to turn uh, one of the agricultural colleges into completely organic college. Today, it's probably the only one in Norway. And at one point, the only one in Europe that was uh, wholly organic. So as I mentioned, economics is oikos. There is a connection because all our wealth comes from nature. So if we don't understand how nature operates, which we have a much better understanding of today, and also we need to learn from indigenous people, and that knowledge, that wisdom needs to be reflected in economics. Sustainable economics or sustainable development is trying to do that. But the problem is 
sustainable development became, you know, a hot topic in 1987 with the Brundtland Commission in the United Nations. But as you mentioned earlier in our talk before the show, it's gotten worse since then. The more we talk about sustainable development, the less sustainable development we're having. And that is because of this huge disconnect between economics and ecology. We are taking nature for granted. It's been looked upon as a free lunch. But as we all know, there's no free lunch. We need to have an economic system that is guided by the laws of ecology. Yeah, in fact, that's the fundamental disconnect in some sense, right? Well, there's two. One is disconnect from planetary safe limits, and the other is focused on money-on-money return as an absolute good, irrespective of human well-being, right? And the two together are essentially the fundamental problem. Now, of course, it is interesting, and I often point out that you know, our modern world started to form around 1700 and reached its clearly visible form around 1800. And in 1700, one can understand how we got to the system we had. You know, in 1700, humans were relatively few. It's hard to believe, but as recently as 300 years ago, there were only 650 million humans on Earth, less than a tenth as we have today. And the energy consumed per human on a worldwide basis was less than a tenth of what it is today. Most of it was animal power, surprisingly, with human power second and wind power third. And of course, since then, we've gone through what Nate Hagens, who we had on the show recently, calls the carbon pulse, where particularly after about 1800, we you know, discovered how to not only find fossil fuels, but then to use them in things like steam engines and then internal combustion engines and later turbines and reactors and such and ramp up the level of energy intensity. And at the same time, the miraculous, frankly, discoveries in biology in the late 19th century allowed us to turn the death rate down and life expectancy up. Though actually death rate down turns out to have been more important than life expectancy up. And we've had this astounding population explosion where we've gone from 650 million people to what, a little bit less than 8 billion people, probably heading for 10 and 11. So anyway, what we take away from it, people in my world take away from it, is it's perfectly understandable that the status quo formed the way it did between 1700 and 1800. Because at that time, we were small and weak relative to nature. But we are no longer. And certainly by, say, 1945, we had the numbers and the power to dominate the world and destroy it, potentially. And since 1975, that's been very clear. It's about when we passed three and a half billion, which might be the carrying capacity of the Earth without advanced fertilizers and technologies and such. Since then, we've clearly been overrunning the sustainable capacity of the earth to support the human race. And for me, the short form, I'd love to get your reactions, the short form, the fundamental problem, deeper than all these epiphenomenal problems, is that the current status quo has no breaks. It's built for exponential growth above all else. And that the the real transition we have to make is from exponential to some form of metastable social operating system that is congruent with staying within planetary limits. Does that make sense to you? Oh, totally. I agree a thousand percent. Very well summarized. Another thing that I just wanted to add to that, uh, what shifted in the 1700s was also this idea that instead of us being part of nature, 
nature was seen as a machine. And that is one of the disconnects that Jeremy Lent points out in his book, The Web of Meaning, which also caused this, what you're talking about, the exponential growth, because then we looked upon nature as just another operating machine that we could utilize at our own you know, interest and growth and so on. Yeah, this is the fundamental problem with capitalism, this idea that we can have endless growth without consequences. We have seen in our civilization that there are serious consequences to this endless growth, and that is the fundamental problem. I would say the problem in terms of economics. And so that is what we're seeing today since, as I mentioned, the topic of sustainable development came on the scene in 1987. We have seen more and more exponential growth. I come from Norway, and Norway is often hailed as the most sustainable country of the Scandinavian countries, you know, the greenest on the planet and so on. However, the reality is if everybody lived like Norwegians, we need four planets in order to sustain ourselves. And this is at the very heart of the problem. So now, you know, in the green movement, we have sort of two worldviews. One is the no growth movement, which is addressing many of this. We have the steady state. And then we have the green growth. And there's sort of a headbutting going on between those two worldviews. In one sense, I think we need a little bit of both. We need some green growth in the developing world because we, in the rich world, we have extracted our resources from that part of the world. We created inequality. Thomas Piketty, the French economist who, you know, uh, wrote a 700-page book and which became a runaway bestseller, focused on the growing inequality that is happening in the world today. So we have runaway growth on one side of the planet, and then we have exploitation and degradation and utilization of resources and not allowing the people in the poor world to, to develop in the same way. So we have a huge problem at our hands. We need to lower our expectations of, about growth in our world. And at the same time, we need to have sustainable, resilient development in the poor part of the world. This is a complex issue. Yeah, and also I'd say that the no growth versus green growth, neither of them hit on quite exactly the right issue, right? And at least to my mind, when people say degrowth, I kind of groan and say, there's a terrible way to present this to people. Because at one level, we do need to literally degrowth. I mean, less inputs. But that doesn't mean we can't be richer because we can grow in the microcosm. You know, things like art, things like living well, things like having better food, even if we do it in a more plant-based diet and grown locally rather than, you know, flying blueberries in from Chile in February, which is obviously totally insane, you know, etc. So we can actually have a better human well-being while having less material inputs. And people have not put those two parts together. And that's my objection to Davos man's approach to, say, climate change, which is less, less, less. You know, humans aren't going to tolerate that unless you give them something in return. And so we need a cultural move to actually have more human well-being while we actually, for at least a while, reduce particularly energy, but other material inputs into our civilization. And green growth, yeah, sort of maybe, but what does that mean, right? It seems to me you have to denominate that quite seriously in terms of, let's say, the nine planetary limits that people have identified. 
And then further, of course, new technologies come along all the time, which allow us to do more with less in some sense, right? That's a good thing that we managed to develop solar power just in time, it sort of seems, you know. Without that, we'd really be in a world of hurt. And in the future, there may be other new energy sources, controllable fusion, maybe someday. I used to be a skeptic on orbital solar, but I just talked to an entrepreneur last week about orbital solar. Maybe they can get that to work with the new lower launch costs that SpaceX provides. So a more nuanced view, I like to call it metastability, where we understand our planetary limits. And as you say, we need to converge worldwide to a similar level of inputs. You know, this idea that people in the West are going to consume 10 times as much per capita as people in sub-Saharan Africa. You know, it's immoral and it's unsustainable for sure. And we need to develop a a convergence to similar levels of inputs that are well within our planetary limits. And I wish we could get a way to describe that with a name. I don't have a name for it yet, but I think neither degrowth or no growth nor green growth quite gets at that dynamics that we have to undergo. Yeah, I would agree to most of what you're saying. Although green growth or at least Degrowth is kind of a misnomer. It's kind of like defund the police, you know, which is, yeah, good intentions about having more social service to reduce crime and so on in society. But we don't want to defund the police. We need the police. And similarly, the degrowth movement is using a term that is a little bit of a misnomer. But Jason Hickel, who is one of the main proponents of degrowth, an economist, he understands what you're talking about. Because most of what he thinks that we need to degrow is in terms of consumerism, things that we really don't need. There are so many uh, consumer items today that we don't need. So many consumer items are created to be broken within a certain time so that we can make a new one. We don't need an iPhone every year and so on. So that is part of what is meant by degrowth. And then, of course, the, the green growth idea is that we need sustainable growth or resilient growth, which is what you're talking about, to create that balance. So, I, so yeah, I, I basically agree with you. We need to find a balance between the, these two ideas and also, like you're saying, come up with terms that really speaks to the issue at hand more, more uh, properly and concretely. Okay, let's move on a little bit to the book, and let's talk a little bit more specifically about one of your four crises, the financial crisis, and particularly how debt seems to be central to this problem. Yeah, so we had a major change in economics in the 70s, particularly up until the 1970s. If we look at the United States, for example, there was very little debt in the economy. There was, people had very little debt. But then there was a change with neoliberalism and the free market or the neoclassical economics, which started a little earlier, but it, it was building up until that time. When debt became part of the economy and at the same time, why? Because we had the growth of the financial economy, which I would call an artificial economy a false economy, because it basically says if you put your money here in this company and you have compounded interest, you will make money without doing anything. And this is the kind of economy we have today. 
when we were writing the book, about 20% of the U.S. economy was the finance economy, meaning an economy that doesn't produce anything. Now that economy is even higher on GNP, I don't know exactly what it is today, but it has grown. And that economy is very dangerous because it creates inequality, it creates inequality of wealth, and it creates inequality of income. So the wealth inequality is incredible. Today we have, you know, a handful of people owning more money than half of the planet. It's it's an insane equation. That uh, which is the inequality that Thomas Piketty is talking about as well. So that economy again is a kind of free lunch economy. It is divorced from the real economy of producing goods that we need in the economy. And so this has created lesser income from the poor. And so in order to stay within the economy, then you need debt. If you want to buy a house, you need to take a bank loan. And then the bank makes money on that loan and with compounded interest. And the banks make more and more money. And you are gradually the common person, the person in the street on Main Street is losing out. So that is what we call a debtor economy, where most of the people in the economy are heavily in debt, whereas the few are earning more and more, and and that is growing. And this is particularly the case in the United States, much less so in Scandinavia, where I grew up. In the United States today, the difference in income between the highest paid and the lowest is about 340 times. In Norway, it is probably less than 20 times. So a huge difference. So there's less of that speculative debtor economy in Europe and particularly in Scandinavia, but it is the predominant part of the economy in the United States. I looked it up this morning when I was preparing my show notes. And as late as 1965, the ratio of CEO pay to worker pay was 21 to 1. And the most recent number in the U.S. that I could find for 2021 was 399 to 1. Oh, so it's even higher, yeah. So it's moved 20x as a ratio. And again, this goes back to the sort of this fundamental introduction that you made, that these things are within our control. It is actually kind of surprising that the masses of people have put up with this. In historical terms, when you get this much inequality, that's when the guillotine starts to clank. <laughs> we haven't seen the guillotines out yet. I wonder what that's about. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Well, you know, again, if if I compare to the uh, the United States with with Europe, you know, um, Michael Moore had a, one of his films. It was called "Where Do We Invade Next?" I think the the title of the film was. He was in France. Had a group of expat American expats around the table. And he asked the question, what's the difference between the United States and, and Europe in terms of politics? And uh, one American woman said, the difference is that in the United States, people are afraid of the government. And in, in Europe, the government is afraid of the people. There is some truth in that. What she meant is that in Europe, and this, this has, I think, shaped the European economy, and especially again in Scandinavia, where you had very strong union movement and an opposition to government policy since the 1930s and onwards. And this has very much shaped the Scandinavian economy 
because every year in Norway, for example, the labor union leaders sit down with governmental leaders to create policy and set income levels and so on and so forth. There's constant negotiation back and forth. That we haven't had in the United States, and that is one of the reasons why there is such a discrepancy between the highest and the lowest pay. So in other words, you have more socialism or Marxism in Europe than you have in the United States. And I think you see that in in politics today, you know, we had election uh, yesterday and we see that uh, there is actually now, interestingly, a growing uh, union movement in the United States, which I think is a good sign. But historically, it's not been a very strong movement. And that, that is part of the reason there are no mechanisms for direct negotiations between the owners of business and the workers. Yeah, of course, the U.S. did have a, a relatively strong union movement up until the early 60s. And of course, it was an institutional problem. I'm not aware of how it works in Norway, but I'm more aware of how it works in Sweden. I have some friends in Sweden, and one of whom was the president of the local union for firefighters in the town that he lived in. He told me how it worked. And even though he's kind of a Trumpy right-wing guy, he's also a really strong union guy. And he explained that 90% of Swedes belong to a union and that that's how they want it. And as you said, annually, they sit down, management and the union representatives, and they hash out a deal. If they can't come to an agreement, there's a strike, usually a symbolic strike for a day or two. And then they sit down again and have it. And the results are a much more egalitarian structure. Uh, Of course, unfortunately, in the U.S., the industrial unions in particular became very corrupt. Some of them were even literally captured by organized crime, famously the Teamsters. They also, let's say, the, the U.S. auto industry in the 60s and 70s were very antagonistic to management and trying to get the company to run well. They were pretty good at getting very good wages, but they had very restrictive work rules and stuff, which you know led the U.S. car companies to be essentially overthrown in market share by the Japanese and to a lesser degree the German ones. You contrast that with German unions, where again, they have very strong unions, but in Germany, the unions actually have representatives on the supervisory board. And so they work with management to make the company more successful, but at the same time demand a fair share of the economics. The U.S. unfortunately didn't develop those institutions. And one of the things I like to always point out is institutional design is really, really important. And we just did not do a good job of modernizing the unions, which did remarkable things from the 30s to the late 50s, and then kind of became rigid and corrupt in the early 60s. And at that point, frankly, it made good sense for businesses to try to get the unions the hell out of their business because they were rigid and stupid and often dominated by criminals. What we should have done is looked at people like Germany and Sweden and Norway, Denmark, I assume, and reinvent this kind of general union cooperation between workers and management for the benefit of both. But America didn't do that. And UK didn't do that either. You know, it seems to not be a Anglophone kind of thing to do. And institutions do matter. Yes, I agree. The other thing you've talked about is national debt. Not only do we have private debt, but all around the world, we have countries that have you know, grossly exceeded reasonable debt levels. And the chickens are going to come home to roost now with interest rates going up. 
The U.S. could get away with its crazy $32 trillion debt next year, which is double in 10 years when you know the interest rates we were paying were 1.5%. When they go back to the historical 5%, how the hell are we going to pay $1.5 trillion a year just of interest? And the U.S. is in better shape because all of its debt's denominated in its own currency. But you look at countries like Greece and Italy and Spain and Portugal, and we have a new and maybe much worse financial crisis that could well be coming. I, I totally agree that that crisis is looming on the horizon. And one of the reasons why the U.S. is still doing okay is because, you know, the, the U.S. dollar is the main currency in the world. But if China and, and Russia and other countries start to demand, you know, doing business in, in their currency, then we would be in, in trouble. So that that's that's part of the problem. But yeah, debt is not not the solution. You know, as Odom, the ecologist, said, you know, in nature there is no debt that is high enough. We have to pay it back. Yeah, and of course the other we talk about institutions, and you allude to this a bit in passing in the book. But in my own analysis, it's more central, which is that our monetary systems across the world today are actually based on debt. You know, 90% of the money in circulation in the United States, 95% the UK, is not issued by the government, but rather is issued by banks when they create debt. And this provides some very bad, I don't know if it's all bad, but it's a curious set of dynamics, which is that money supply tends to grow overly fast during expansions, which causes the economy to be overheated. But as soon as things turn, banks pull in their lending, which at least implicitly reduces the money supply at exactly the wrong time. In fact, the knobs turn the wrong way, both on the way up and the way down. And I've long proposed a system whereby money is not issued by banks, but rather is issued by the state. I call this program dividend money. And basically all the new money that comes in each year goes to the people per capita as essentially a bonus to the populace at about the rate of GDP growth, maybe plus a percent or two. And that kind of system does not have this double negative feedback system racing ahead on the upside and then retrenching too fast on the downside. And so again, this is an institutional structural issue that could make a big difference. I, I totally agree. Yeah, that's why we have these the boom and bust cycles in the current economy. Like you're saying, it accelerate way up, and then we have a crash like we had in 2008-10. And we might as well be in for another bust like that now. But yeah, that is a, a part of the problem. It's an artificial economy. The finance sector is out of touch with the real economy. And, and so you have these boom and bust cycles. Yeah, those who are interested in my proposal, search Dividend Money Jim Rutt YouTube, and you can find an hour and a half of me ranting on this topic and explaining how it works. Now, another structural thing that you did highlight, you did a very nice job, I learned some things on this, is talking about how the Eurozone had the surprising effect of actually making the rich richer. You know, at first, you might have thought they should have helped the poorest countries the most, but in the end, it, it turned out not to. So why don't you tell us that story? Yeah, so because of the centralization of the euro, you had uh, basically a situation where strong economies like uh, especially Germany and, and France, but especially Germany, 
again, you know, the German banks are sort of controlling the euro. And then in order for the countries like Portugal and especially Greece, Greece, you know, had probably the worst crisis around that time, 2008-10, because they were, they were poorer countries and they needed to catch up. Then they were loaned money in, in uh, euros, but of course they had to pay that money back. And then they loaned so much that they got into a crisis and then they were not able to loan it back and so on. And so you had this economic crisis in especially Portugal uh, and Greece, Italy to some extent. But basically the, it created this huge division between the haves and the have-nots in, in Europe. And I think that it would have been better to kept the, the national economies or the national currencies until the Eurozone had become a place where you had more equal economies. In other words, not such a difference between, especially the, the countries in, in the southern states in Europe and the northern states. That was a big mistake. Although I think they recognize some of that mistakes and, and it has balanced to some extent, but these same countries are in, in debt still and haven't really recovered from that crisis, especially Greece. Listeners who aren't up on the details of macroeconomics, one of the key things about having your own currency is if you are less productive, let's say you're Greece versus Germany, you can change your exchange rate. And it actually has some very interesting effects. It doesn't impact the well-being of your citizens very much, a little bit, but it makes your exports much more competitive. And so that even if your productivity rate is less, your industry can be preserved. But as you point out very cleverly in your book, the Germans are more productive. If the Germans and the Greeks are linked in the same currency, there's nothing the Greeks can do about it. And they essentially become deindustrialized by the fact that they don't have the flexibility to adjust their currency to the reality economic situation. I'm going to point out something else about Greece, though, which points to a really big pattern, which I don't think has been seen enough by people. Greece has had all kinds of historical problems. They've had problems collecting their taxes. They've had a lot of corruption. But what people don't know, generally speaking, is Greece spends one of the highest amounts per capita on military of any country on earth. I looked it up this morning, and Greece spent last year 3.87% of its GDP on military. Germany, 1%. Japan, 1%. Even Taiwan, sitting under the gun of the Chinese, like 1.3%. Even the United States, about 3.5%. So Greece is one of the biggest spenders on military, and mostly it's because of their feud with Turkey. And you go, what the hell is this about? Two NATO members? They're not actually going to go to war with each other, but there's this arms race. In fact, in our Game B world, we talk about this as the multipolar trap, where Frankly, the stupidest thing human race can do is spend money on the military. Well, second stupidest. The stupidest is to fight wars, right? Wars are nothing but bad for the participants in them. But because one country can threaten the other, let's look at Russia and Ukraine, it forces everybody else to increase their military spending. The Germans are going to double their military spending. And so we're kind of caught in this multipolar trap of defense spending. And here's the part that people haven't seen yet, I don't think, is that while we talked about that exponential economics is the problem that's going to destroy the ecosystem if we can't find our way to economic stability, since at least the American Civil War, 
military power has been relatively strongly correlated with economic power. So if you back off of exponential economics before the other guys do, while you're still caught in the multipolar military trap, you lose. So it's actually a very deep and dangerous conundrum that we have to find a way to back away from the military multipolar trap at the same time we're trying to back away from the you know, economic exponentiation. You know, Greece would be way better off if they were spending 1% of GDP on military like Germany does rather than 3.87, but they haven't found a way to back away from that. That applies on a worldwide basis, basically. Yeah, I, I wasn't aware of that, actually. That's a very good point. It's quite interesting. The more broader thing is even more than the percentage of GDP, it's the fact that the perceived correlation between economic power and military power. So if you're caught in a military competition you can't back away from, you can't back away from exponential economics. I don't have an answer for this, but I think this is something people need to focus on more, is that linkage going forward. Mm -hmm. Let's move on. Let's talk a little bit about inequality. We talked about it a little bit in passing. Give us your systematic thoughts on what's going on with you know seemingly growing inequality everywhere, even including in Scandinavia now, though. Maybe not as rapidly as other places, but, you know, of course, the leading growth in inequality is in India and China. So there's something fundamental about the operating system today that seems to be generating this inequality. Yeah, and I think that the main problem with inequality lies at the heart of the imbalance or the contradiction within the capitalist system of looking at only profit as the main driver of the economy. That leads to uh, winners and losers. The, you know, it is no accident that the selfish gene, Richard Dawkins' book, The Selfish Gene, became very popular on Wall Street. I think that <laughs> that idea that we are inherently selfish beings and there's no altruism or cooperation in evolution or in human society lies at the heart of this problem. So... When we have economies such as India, that is a developing economy, in the last 10 years, we have seen the growth of a middle class, 300 million people in the middle class. But at the same time, the poor have not gotten out of their poverty. So yes, we have seen a growing middle class, but at, at the same time, we have also seen billionaires coming out of India. Many billionaires are now Indian. So again, we see this top-heavy economy, which is centralized in the hands of bankers, in, in the hands of owners of businesses, and so on, and corporations. So that corporate capitalist economy is very imbalanced, and that, that is the main cause of inequality in the world today. And this is what Thomas Piketty talks about. So how do we deal with that? We need to bail out the people rather than the banks whenever there's a crisis. No bank is too big to fail as, as it is in nature. We need to increase the wages uh, as per the productivity of the economy. We need to have progressive taxation. You know, uh, in the United States, in the 50s, taxation of the ultra-rich was up to 80%, 90%. That even the playing field. We need to honor the real economy that the people that produce will get proper pay for what they produce. And we need to give incentives to co-ops and worker-owned businesses as well. And this is something we haven't talked about yet. But 
What we advocate in the book is that the corporations are turned into worker-owned businesses. Rather than Elon Musk owning the business, the workers themselves should be the main owners. And this, I think, is the major change that needs to happen. And I was very gratified to read in Forbes magazine when the biographer of Margaret Thatcher, who was not the leftist, not the you know, ecological activist by any means, he was saying that we need to turn the corporations into worker-owned business. So here you have a right-wing person basically saying the same thing as, as I'm saying and what we advocate in the book. And I see this as a hopeful sign that many more people now are understanding that private corporate ownership is the main cause of inequality and also one of the main causes of environmental destruction. And that needs to change because it is the cause of this huge inequality that is still growing on the planet. Even though there's more wealth, there's also more inequality. Yeah, you actually laid out, I thought, a very interesting three-tier class of companies. That was something new. I thought that was an interesting contribution. Yeah, this is something that I think is the solution. So if we look at Scandinavia, as I mentioned earlier, Scandinavia is probably the closest to that kind of an economy. So what we are advocating is a three-tier economy that supports capitalism but on a small scale. So private businesses up to about 25 employees, privately owned, so that there are no corporations, but capitalism is allowed, which is different from socialism or communism. And then that the corporate sector is turned into cooperatives and worker-owned, worker decisions, sharing the wealth, as we have in the Mondragon co-ops in the Basque region of Spain, very, very successful, 70,000, 80,000 people employed in a few thousand businesses that are very successful, even though they're competing in, in a very uh, hard cutthroat capitalist system. And the third element would be government-owned businesses. And you can see that in Norway, 75% of the oil industry in Norway is owned by the government. And that is one of the reasons why there is free medical care, free education through university and so on. Because the money earned from the oil and gas production is turned back into goods for the people. So that kind of an economy would then have a balance between the best of capitalism and the best of socialism in that sense. However, it needs to be within the limits of the ecology of nature. So we could say that a donut economy or a donut economic vision needs to be part of this. So we have then a structural change at the heart of economics that then functions within the circle, the bigger circle, which is the natural environment. That's sort of the main vision we have for that new economy. And then, of course, there are many details that go through that within that system. Yeah, that's quite interesting. Of course, there's some things that need to be thought about. You know, the United States has cooperatives as well. In fact, I'm a member of two cooperatives, though they're both buyer cooperatives rather than employee cooperatives. There's really two class. There's consumer cooperatives and employee-owned cooperatives. 
as a farmer, I belong to two that provide some of our materials for our farm, and you get a rebate at the end of the year, and it operates on a not-for-profit basis, which is good. And we have a few local employee-owned cooperatives, but until very recently, a structural problem was the law of cooperatives made it very difficult to get investments into them. Yeah, yeah. So that has to change. In the farm sector, in the 50s and 60s, especially in Scandinavia, the, the cooperative sector was very strong in the dairy sector and in the general farm economy, also in the United States. However, on the global scale, I believe it is about 10% of industries in the world are cooperatives. The Mondragon co-ops are probably the most well-known because it's so concentrated. But also in northern Italy, 30% of the business in northern Italy are co-ops as well. So we have certain areas of the world that has a high percentage of co-ops. In the Mondragon co-ops that employs you know, thousands of people, nobody has been laid off since the 1950s when these co-ops were started. So that is one of the main benefits, tremendous security in the economy. And, and so that there's no fear of being laid off, but rather people are reskilled or there are changes in the economy or in the business because the idea is that we are all part of this. This is our business. And so we work this out together. Not like, you know, today when Musk took over Twitter and he basically fired, you know, half of the staff. And of course, in the U.S., there's some good-sized co-ops, too. The Land Lakes Company, which is the biggest butter producer in the United States, is a producer co-op. Yeah, and also some citrus growers in Florida, they're also co-ops. Yeah, and though, again, we talked about it earlier, it's, it, it's kind of, especially for a more traditional company, let's say a factory or something, gaining capital to build the factory is actually quite difficult. Though, fortunately, in the U.S., there just recently been some changes in the law to produce so-called hybrid co-ops, where you can bring external capital in at a fair rate of return. Right? Maybe it gets a 5 or 6% rate of return, not a 16% rate of return. You know, venture capitalists are looking for, on average, 16 to 20% rate of return. And that basically strips much of the profit out of the business. If you have hybrid co-ops, particularly the state of Colorado has been you know, a leader in this. In fact, I did a podcast with Jason Weiner, who's an attorney in Colorado and, and helped advise the state on these laws. And so people who are interested in doing co-ops might well look at the Colorado law because they're trying to be the Delaware for cooperatives all over the country who can register in Colorado, even if they're operating elsewhere and use some of these innovative structures. And I get to the point that institutions matter and our society needs to be smarter at adjusting our institutions to make changes in this direction. Now, government ownership is interesting. I can see the argument for it in things that are utility-like, for sure. I mean, water systems, sewer systems, even municipal power, internet, those all kind of make sense. That is where we are advocating that the government comes in. There's another class, though, which I wonder about, and that is product-oriented industries that require innovation. For instance, it would scare me to have the government own something like Tesla, which is you know very driven by innovation, or Intel. Presumably, there needs to be another structure for research-intensive, innovation-driven companies that nonetheless still have to be big. Any thoughts on that? I agree, agree. And I think that those could still be uh, cooperative. Some may be privately owned. You know, they could, so there has to be flexibility here. Maybe 
a small private company producing very specialized item for for a larger industry. So so again, I think that innovation can happen as uh, equally strong, I think, within the cooperative economy. Also, it is very important to remember that a lot of the innovations that happen in our society have been supported by government money. So the government can then supply and support the co-ops just like they're now supporting many corporations. I mean, Bill Gates, without having the access to universities funded by the government and so on, and many inventions, we never hear about that side of the story. We always hear about the successful individual, but we never hear that, well, they were partly successful because they got government grants and so on and so forth. So I think that there is a role here for the government to play in funding and and in capitalization. And at the same time, there is growth from the bottom up in terms of creativity and and change. Yep, those are all very interesting ideas. Now, here's a quote from you that I want to push back on just a little bit. If the banking system collapses, the entire edifice of the market economy will come tumbling down. All it does not produce anything itself. Financial system enables all commercial transactions, including imports and exports, to function. I like to point out to people that maybe less than we think. In reality, finance is nothing but pointers to wealth. It is not wealth itself, right? If all the money and all the stock markets disappeared, the factories would still be there, the farms would still be there, the trucks would still be there, human capital would still be there. And in fact, we have a handful of interesting historical examples where banking and finance essentially disintegrated, and yet new systems were put in place, and the economies restarted remarkably rapidly. Two I've done some research on are the hyperinflations in Germany, Hungary, and Austria in early 1920s, where literally, you know, you've seen the things in the college textbooks of people pushing wheelbarrows full of currency to buy a loaf of bread. And essentially, the value of money got wiped out, etc. Argentina, 2000-2001, had something similar occur. And yet, especially in Germany, when they introduced the new mark, the economy restarted in a week. It was quite remarkable. So I say, yes, we think we're utterly dependent on banking and finance. But I also argue that as long as we had an architecture to replace it with, you could actually make a more radical change in that area than people think, because money is not wealth. Stocks are not wealth. They're coordinating signaling devices And they're probably more changeable than we tend to think, and certainly more changeable than the powers that be that dominate those institutions would like us to think, you know, which leads me to some radical ideas, you know, things like instead of you have, uh, we'll talk about that soon, you have an interesting idea about how to handle excess sovereign debt. But I might go a step further and say, hey, let's eliminate all debt. Let's do a global jubilee. Let's clear the decks, right? Let's introduce a new monetary system of the sort I've talked about, where money is issued by the state as a per capita dividend to the citizenry. And as long as we had thought that out in advance, yes, it might cause little turmoil. It might be surprising how far afield we could go in terms of radical new institutions, so long as we understand that money and finance are not wealth. I agree with you. It is true. However, we cannot avoid some kind of crisis. You know, the the depression in the 1930s was a stock market crash, and it had devastating effect in the real economy as well. 
because of this relationship that is there. But I agree with you uh, in a fundamental sense. And I think that the planned you know, forgiveness program of, of all that, I think <laughs> it's actually a quite, quite good idea, which sometimes happens. Sometimes poorer countries are forgiven their IMF debt and so on. That, that does happen because they're realizing that they are never going to get back the money anyway. But I don't think that a huge international financial crash wouldn't hurt the real economy. It would. But the other question is, I think that it would probably be for the better. Yes, in the short term, it will hurt many people. But in the long term, this is where we're heading. We're heading towards this crisis. And this is uh, why we put the four of them together. We're heading to this perfect storm of these four different crises. And I, th I think that we are actually closer to that today than when we wrote the book. I agree. You have a, a more moderate approach, but a clever one that I've never seen before, on how to eliminate public debt. It was a while ago you wrote this, and I thought this was an interesting idea, which you pointed out that typically the private wealth in an economy, in an advanced economy, or even a semi-advanced economy, is usually four to six times the public debt. It may have shrunk some with the gross run-up of public debt recently, but let's call it five times, right? You therefore pointed out that a one-time wealth tax of 20% could be used to pay off the public debt. And you could either do it as a one-time extraction on wealth, or you could do it the Piketty way, which is to have a ongoing wealth tax that essentially pumps tax on private wealth that could be used for, amongst other things, paying off or at least reducing to a tolerable level public debt. Do you still think those are reasonable approaches? Yeah, I, I do. I think that progressive taxation is is a way to go as as a reform strategy. But in the long term, I think that the restructuring of the economy is necessary to avoid these booms and bust cycles in the economy. And that's why we, we are focusing in the book, in, in the last part of the book, on, on the solutions, on what we would call a restructured, decentralized economy more economic democracy, not just political democracy, but economic democracy, meaning that the people involved in economics working day to day are also part of the decision making in the economy. But yes, I think that to deal with the debt, progressive taxation is, is one of the steps to, to move. But when you restructure the economy, the, the debt burden will automatically go down because you are focusing on the real economy rather than continuously the finance economy and you know always having the short end of the stick. So that's why we are supporting that as a temporary measure. And that's why I think Piketty has some really good points and, and I think his, his work is very important. All right. Well, let's move on here. So much interesting stuff to talk about. We can talk for three hours easily. But being an old geezer, I can't keep my energy up for quite that long. So let's move on to resources and particularly energy and how these fit into the puzzle. Yeah. So as you mentioned in the beginning, you know, the reason why we have 
had so much success in, in producing all this wealth in the, the rich part of the world, particularly, is because of cheap energy. The oil boom, the oil revolution, created a situation in which we had ample resources in order to, to produce things. And without that oil, we would not have been where we are today. With, with that oil, we produced artificial uh, fertilizer and so on, energy to heat our homes, energy to drive our cars and transportation and so on. So an explosion in economics. And at the same time, as you mentioned also, an explosion in population. And at the same time, an explosion in terms of utilizing uh, non-renewable resources. And so today we are at, at the point where we are using up the resources of the planet. Fish in the oceans, we have depleted uh, so many of the fish stocks, some of them uh, up to 70%. Water resources we have misutilized due to this explosion in growth of the economy in certain parts of the world. So again, this growth has created a tremendous economic and environmental imbalance. So we are at at the resource crisis. We are at the resource crisis in terms of water. We have maybe not, as Richard Hyman said in his book, The Party is Over, which came out, I think, in 2006. He wrote a recent article in saying, yes, I was a little early by saying that we are running out of oil, but we are right on course And in, in terms of my analysis. And I think that is right. We are moving into a situation where is becoming more and more expensive to utilize gas and oil as a resource. And so we are at this tipping point. We need to increase alternative energy, solar energy, wind energy, and so on. At the same time, we need to do that in a responsible way. We can't do it you know, overnight. We can't crash the whole economy. So we are at a very delicate situation. And will we avoid the crisis here in terms of balancing the utilization of non-renewable resources and other renewable resources like fish? That is the $60 million question. And I think it seems like we're moving towards a crisis of global proportions. However, and here is how thin the balance is, how thin the veil is between total exploitation and crisis and regeneration and change. If we set aside one third of the oceans for 10 years and no fishing, the whole fishing stock would renew in 10 years. So in other words, the whole ecosystem of the oceans would renew itself. These are the kinds of things that we need to do on a global scale because now we don't have environmental problems just in our backyard. It has become a global phenomenon. And what we're not seeing is, are these kinds of actions taken? These are the kinds of decisions that need to be made at COP27, but they're not happening. They're rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic, basically. That's correct. That's exactly right. And then, you know, I recently was talking to some people involved in the ESG investing space, right? Environmental, sustainable, and governance type investing. 
And that's turned into greenwashing as well. It's letting the current group of elites make teeny little changes is not going to get us there. What it's most likely to do is get us a you know fascist dictatorship because they're not encouraging us to move in ways that improve in human well-being. It's, it just makes no sense. It's really crazy. So much interesting stuff to talk on. Let's, let's move on. Something that's going to get me to go back and do more research. You pointed to, what's his name, Pagliani? Is that how you pronounce his name? Carl Pagliani, yeah. Yeah, and I think you got it from him and some other related people. The idea that we have made a huge mistake when we think of land, labor, and money as the same as commodities. Could you talk about that a little bit? I think that's a really interesting insight. going to make me do a little research and learn more about that. Yeah, so... Karl Polyani was a Hungarian economist, and he wrote The Great Transformation in the 1940s, and he was prophetic. He basically pointed out what has happened, and that is, he said, we have created a market economy that is based on production and, and the selling, supply and demand, but that system needs to be guided by society, by the culture, and it cannot be devoid from that. And... In addition to that, we have turned everything into a commodity, land, money, labor, as something that can be sold and exchanged. And, and he, he basically said, this is the heart of the problem in our economy. And, and he's been absolutely right. So when we commodify everything, nothing is sacred anymore. Morality is out the window. Ethics is out the window. David Brower, the founder of the Sierra Club, he had a wonderful saying. He said, every new invention is guilty until proven innocent. If we had followed Carl Polyani's message, we would have thought twice about letting new inventions onto the market if we had that kind of ethics. And this is what Carl Polyani was talking about. But because everything becomes a commodity, it can be bought and sold on the free market then everything is just a thing. There's no sacredness. There's no culture behind this. There are no, it doesn't have any value apart from the monetary value. And that's been the downfall of Western civilization. This is at the heart of the problems that we're facing today. And we need to re-sacralize the planet, the work, human interactions, ethics, morality, values, spirituality needs to become central to the way we do economics. It's interesting that when I was reading the book, I had just recently given a talk on issues like values. And you know, I pointed out that it's a moral obscenity. And I'm not gonna, I, I think I used the F word to emphasize it in my talk as I sometimes do, that the richest country in the world has tens of thousands of homeless people living on the streets. You know, how could that possibly be? How could that be a moral decision like what has happened in San Francisco and Los Angeles? And you think about it. I had that in my mind. Then I read your finished reading your book and I came across this and I said, ah, to treat land and specifically housing as if it were just any other commodity ends up with that result. When I first was an adult, you could rent perfectly reasonable housing for a reasonable percentage of your salary. And this is like a great example of the conundrum and why thinking about this wrong produces terrible results. But since 1975, the 
cost of housing has skyrocketed, right? What used to be a $300 a month apartment is now $3,500 a month. And here's the key. It's the same damn apartment. No new wealth has been created. And so essentially, literally, rentier, the rentier class has pulled a massive scam on humanity by moving a greater and greater percentage of our work labor, the, you know, the, the blood of our lives, into paying for rent or the rent equivalent in purchasing a house. And it makes no sense, right? Why would we want that? Yet it's happened despite the fact that it's essentially crushing the well-being of anybody who's not affluent and at the margin results in tens of thousands of people living on the street in the richest city in America. Yeah, it is so true. We are living in a rentier economy. It's exactly right. And companies like Uber and Airbnb are capitalizing on on that rentier uh, system and destroying. For example, I was in Portugal, in Lisbon, a couple of years ago at the conference. And I heard that many of the local neighborhoods had basically been destroyed. People couldn't afford to live there anymore because of Airbnb. Private investors were buying up whole blocks of apartments and then kicking out the older people living there. And now the rents are sky high uh, and many of them are, you know, rented out as Airbnb. So, yeah, it is true. We have created the rentier economy. We are all in debt and we have all become rentiers. We are, we are the modern serfs of this economy and it's not really improving. It's not really changing. It is not. But to your point at the very beginning that these are all human constructions. And if we had the vision and the fortitude to assert our democratic power, we could change these things. Exactly. That, again, is the fundamental issue of economics. So much of it has to do with values, morality, and vision, and worldview, because that is what creates the economy that we want. So in other words, It is a construct, and we need to construct an economy that is based on good values, creating a good society, basically. I mean, it's it's that simple. Indeed. And we're coming up here on our time, unfortunately, as I said, go on talk endlessly on this stuff. I'm going to now switch, running through some of the tactical, financial, and related reforms which you suggested. Just get your quick reactions to them, and you know, maybe you can tell us a little bit more. One you proposed is credit default swaps should be regulated, just like the insurance industry. And here's a controversial one. One should not be allowed to buy uh, credit default swaps with assets that one does not own. Yeah. Yeah, because that just feeds into this artificial speculative economy. It, it, It just keeps that speculative economy growing rather than creating real wealth for real people. As we know, it was also the spring when it was pulled way back when that was released, that's what caused the financial crisis in 2008. That and some related chicanery that very few people know about rehypothecating collateral. Just look that up. Rehypothecated collateral, people. Google that term. And when you read it, you'll be horrified at what our financial system is doing behind the scenes that has nothing to do with productivity and does nothing but adds risk to the system. Naked short selling should be banned. Yeah, again, short selling, you know, it's, it's just more of the same. Speculation on money, uh, making a quick buck, literally in cyberspace, not creating any any real wealth. Though, I'm going to push back on this one a little bit. You know, companies can be good or they can be bad. They can be misleading the public, etc. And short selling is a way to signal that you think a company is being duplicitous. 
and that it doesn't actually have the potential that it's claiming in the marketplace. And if we think of you know finance and money as signaling modalities that help us operate cooperatively in a decentralized fashion, I'm not entirely sure that getting rid of short selling is a good idea. I'd like to be able to call bullshit on companies that I think are not what they say they are. Right. Yeah, yeah it's true. I, I, I see your point. Yeah. Yeah. In some instances like that, I think it, it could work. Yeah. On, on the other hand, on smaller companies, you can you know crush a company by organizing a big short. But on bigger companies, it may be useful. So I want to rethink that one a little bit. In a similar vein, option markets should be used solely for mitigation of risk and not for speculation. I would say that the same objection to short selling may apply there, though maybe not as strongly, that investing in options is a signaling modality or express an opinion about what might happen. And that in itself can be useful. Right. You know, uh, Jim, I was wondering if, because we have so little time left, if you could maybe do some features of the new economy. Yeah, there's various ones. Let's go on to, we'll skip over these details. I happen to love financial shit, so that's why I kind of went down that rabbit hole. A couple other ones, as we get to the more macro level, and I think this was very much accurate. You strongly reject the Washington consensus for how countries should manage their economy democratically. Why don't you talk about that? What's your advice to nation states for how they should manage their economies. Yeah, so th- this is one of the problems with the, the free trade system and what came out of the negotiations starting in the 60s and so on, and uh, which developed the free trade agreements throughout the world. Because it was basically free trade for the rich and controlled trade for the poor. So, uh, for example, we quote Eric Reiner, the Norwegian economist, who wrote the book, uh, Why the Poor Stay Poor and Why the Rich Stay Rich. Because free trade agreements were used for the benefit of the rich so that they could have easy access to raw material. This happened in Africa, in South America, in India. It goes all the way back to colonial time. And in effect, free trade is in many ways a continuation of colonial practices, meaning that, for example, in the United States, one of the rebellions that created the United States was the rebellion against the British for not allowing the United States to industrialize. The British wanted the United States to be an agrarian economy. And that is literally what has happened in so many parts of the world, where the poorer countries was not allowed to industrialize. And so trade agreements need to be fair In other words, the best strategy would be for small nation states to only export finished products rather than raw materials, utilizing the raw materials in their own country, develop product, and thereby industrialize, and of course in a sustainable manner, and then sell the finished products, earning more money and raising the living standard of its own people. But this is not happening in the current free trade agreements. They're not fair. And we need fair trade, not free trade. Again, I learned something in this book, and this is an area I know a fair bit about. Comparative advantage is often said is one of the few things in economics that is both true and non-trivial. And for the audience that may not remember their econ, comparative advantage says countries should concentrate on what it does best relative to other things even if it does less well 
than other places do. So for instance, if you're better at making grapes and wine than you are at wheat, even if you're not real great at either one, you should make more wine, right? Ricardo was the guy who came up with that idea. And it is really central to the way that neoclassical economists think about the world. And you gave a neat example, I don't know where you got it from, which is you acknowledge that in a static sense, this is true. And it is. The math actually works. I remember in my economics classes working through it. And comparative advantage does actually make sense. However, you made the very nice distinction that if you only stick with what you're currently good at, it's very much like a six-year-old child choosing to go to work shining shoes rather than go to school. And that what the idea of comparative advantage misses entirely is the dynamics of the evolution of a society. You know, you pointed out the Brits wanted the U.S. to be a raw materials, trees, tar, maritime supplies, and agriculture, tobacco, etc. But the Americans didn't want that. Particularly Alexander Hamilton realized that if we're going to have an industrialized America starting in competition with this global monolith of England, we would have to have high tariffs to do import substitution as a way to bootstrap our way up the stack, very much like rather than going, sending your six-year-old out on the street shining shoes, you know, put them to school for 16 years so they could get a better job. And I think that was a very, very interesting perspective and is the first good refutation I've seen of Ricardo's comparative advantage. Yes. And what Ricardo's system led to was protectionism for the rich and, and free trade for the poor. Uh, because the poor were not allowed to grow out of their own, you know, yes, as you said, if they're good at uh, producing tomatoes, they were not allowed to produce anything but tomatoes. They were not allowed to industrialize and so on. So that that comparative uh, advantage led to a disadvantage for the poor countries. And that's one of the reasons for the inequality uh, we have in the world. Okay, now let's get on. We'll probably exit here because we're getting up on our time. Some strong recommendations, which as you can tell from my conversation, I'm kind of good with strong stuff. You recommended caps on wealth and income. So let's talk about that. Yeah, I think one of the ways to get rid of this finance crisis that is brewing and it is all always there and this artificial economy is to have a, a wealth tax a uh, cap on, on high income. We have caps on minimum wage. Why should we only punish the poor and, and, and not the rich? And, and because we had that in the 60s, 50s in the United States, for example, and also in Europe, progressive tax. But as I mentioned earlier, taxation is really a way towards systems change, structural change in the economy. So I don't see that as so much necessary when we have a society that is restructured economically, then there will be less need for progressive taxation because naturally people or a few people will not earn as much. But today, I think it is very important. We need to get the money from somewhere. Like you said earlier, why should the richest country on the, in the world have tens of thousands of people living on the street? It's insane. It is unjust. And that money needs to come from somewhere to train people, to give them psychological care if that's what they need, to get them into programs if they're alcoholics and, and drug addicts and so on. Yeah, and, and truthfully, you know, I've thought about this quite a bit. You know, I played the game of capitalism hard and made lots of money, but I didn't really play it for the money. I sort of played it to win. And the fact that I made ridiculous sums of money 
was frankly irrelevant to my motivation. A 10x difference in income would have been plenty to motivate me, right? It didn't have to be a 500x, which it was at one point, right? And, you know, this is a case where because we have not thought about our institutional structures and how they come back to human well-being and human motivation, we've gotten it wrong. Nobody needs to make $10 billion. What the fuck? You know, how many cheeseburgers can you eat? In my case, it's a fair number, but it's still limited, right? You know, I even ran the numbers on how much could you spend on whores and cocaine, and it came out to about $300,000 a year, right? So, so even if you want to be a total degenerate, these kinds of things are just entirely broken, and there's nothing wrong with us saying a 10x difference in incomes is good. You know, we have that power as Democratic people to do it, but it's not on the table at all. Even Bernie Sanders or Jeremy Corbyn never puts ideas like that on the table. They're just thought to be too radical. I would encourage the audience to think outside the box. And I think that you've done a great job of laying out some interesting and controversial ideas here that actually do hang together pretty well. Thank you. I appreciate that. Any final thoughts before we wrap it up? Well, I, I uh, enjoyed this interview very much, and I, I am uh, glad to see that you had such a good grasp on economics and also contributed so many interesting ideas. Well, I think that we are moving towards this perfect storm, this crisis. We, we focus on four of them in the book. And unfortunately, I think that we will go through a crisis fairly soon. We're already starting with the climate crisis. We're already experiencing the effects of the climate crisis. But at the same time, I think we are also going to have an economic crisis. But what gives me hope is that so many of the ideas that we have for change are already here. And I think many of them are enough to ride us through the storm. What that storm would look like, nobody knows. When it will happen, nobody knows. But I'm very hopeful that we as humanity, we will survive this crisis and we will thrive and we will find a way to live together on this finite planet, utilizing our finite resources and expand in infinite ways through our spirit and our minds, through creativity, culture, spirituality, because that is... As you mentioned in the beginning, that's where we need to grow as humans and as spiritual beings. That's where the real growth needs to happen. Well, thank you, Roar Bionis, for a wonderful conversation. You know, this is very stimulating. I learned some new things. It's relatively unusual for me to learn new things in this space because I've read so much about it. I would highly recommend people who are interested in this actually read the book. We did hit many of the high points, but there are a lot of rich points that we didn't have time to. And the book's title is Growing a New Economy Beyond Crisis Capitalism and Environmental Destruction. Audio production and editing by Andrew Blevins Productions. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.